Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. Well, as we near the end of 1 Samuel, I invite you to turn with me to chapter 30. You know, some say that there's nothing like a crisis to clear one's mind, to help us to focus. David, while on the run as a fugitive, fleeing from King Saul, take his men to live among the Philistines. In our passage, he now faces one of his greatest tests yet. In response to his crisis, Saul sought the counsel of an occult witch. In contrast, David repents and turns to the Lord. Tonight, we want to see how he demonstrates how we can strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Let us read that we might gain a heart of wisdom. 1 Samuel 30. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept, until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahianam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Himelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master. Now take you down to this band. 
And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove their livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, and Ramoth of the Negev, and Jatir, and Aror, and Shifmoth, and Eshtemoah, and Rakal, and the cities of the Jeramalites, and the cities of the Canaanites, and Hormah, and Borashan, and Athok, and Hebron for all the places where David and his men had roamed. This is God's word. Our gracious God, once again I would pray, at the words of my mouth, that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Growing up, my family had a small lake house about an hour and a half north of our home on a very large lake, and our home was on the southern end facing the north. And every winter, great storms would come out of the north and bring large waves crashing into our boat dock and the bulkhead on the front of the property that rose about three or four feet above the surface of the water. So every spring, we'd have to go up to assess the damage, to make repairs, to replace boards, to bring in dirt and grass, for the yard that had been washed out into the lake. And in very bad years, we'd have to hire a professional to come in and reinforce the steel and the concrete to fix the damaged bulkhead. The forces of nature are strong against our defenses. Sometimes in life, we feel like the waves just keep pounding against us until our strength gives out. Well, David, in our passage, finds himself in such a spot Having just escaped one danger, he now faces something worse, like the man from Amos 5.19, who flees from a lion only to meet a bear, 
and then flees and takes refuge in a house, only to be bitten by a snake. Where do we turn for refuge when our reserves are spent? Well, like David, may we learn to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Tonight from this passage, we want to first observe the inadequacy of human wisdom. Then we want to go on to consider how God's strength is sufficient, how God's providence is essential, and how God's grace is decisive. First, the inadequacy of human wisdom. In our last episode from weeks ago, we considered how David escaped, he and his men, by the skin of their teeth, avoiding having to go into war against their own people as the Philistine commanders turned them away. And so in our passage, the men embark upon a 60-mile journey back to their hometown of Ziklag. The levity of their spirits, having just gotten themselves out of a pickle, soon turned to desperation as they neared their town and saw smoke rising from it. We can just imagine the frantic terror of the men as they raced to their homes that had been burned to find their goods plundered, their families taken captive to be sold as slaves. In verse 4, the men raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. If the three-day journey had not exhausted these young men in their prime, certainly the overwhelming sorrow would spend their remaining strength. Tragedies befall us in a fallen world, oftentimes beyond our control. But in this case, David is culpable. He's responsible for moving his company outside of Israel in an act of unbelief. After he had already spared Saul two times, had been given assurances from Saul, and had the Lord's promise of protection. David had taken matters into his own hands, and he apparently had left Ziklag unprotected, their wives and children vulnerable. A foolish thing to do with the well-known dangers of marauding bands in that region. And there is no evidence that David had sought God's counsel or had prayed for their family's protection when they departed. David is guilty of culpable neglect and presumption. Pain and suffering can be traumatic, and doubly so when we bear the regret of failure. The Amalekites were not a new enemy to God's people, and this would not be the last time they would threaten them. Moses, when he led Israel to the Promised Land, found themselves attacked by the Amalekites, who struck their rear guard, striking like predators against the stragglers in the back of the herd. In 1 Samuel 15, we see that Saul sought to destroy the Amalekites as a holy act of vengeance. But his failure to fully obey the Lord by not striking down all the livestock cost him the kingship. You recall that later, centuries later, during the days of Queen Esther, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, the Agagite, was a descendant of 
the Amalekites and came close to destroying the Jewish people. In verse 6, we see that David is deeply distressed. Having lost his two wives, bearing the weight of guilt, and now facing mutiny as the men talk of stoning him to death. Even when we have failed, we have a choice in how we respond. We can despair, give way to self-pity like Saul, or we can take responsibility, humbly repent and seek the Lord like David. By God's grace, our family has been spared such tragedies as we think about preparing our children even for such times like these. As we consider the various trouble that teens and young adults get themselves into, my wife and I have adopted a, a, uh, an approach where we instruct our children something like this. For starters, don't do stupid. But if you do do stupid, don't be more stupid by trying to cover it up or hide it from us. Come clean and let us help you deal with it. David does stupid. But he does not do more stupid like Saul. Rather, he strengthens himself in the Lord. After all this time running on his own strength, he is spent. And David, the prodigal, comes to his senses. Rather than contend with his men or allow factions to form or blindly chase after this marauding band in a rage, David first turns to the Lord for strength. David is at his lowest point, like Jonah in the belly of the great fish, humbly praying to God, like Jacob wrestling with an angel all night long, preparing to face his brother Esau. Sometimes God brings us to our lowest point to expose our idolatry, our empty hopes, our lack of faith, our foolish self-trust, our false messiahs. Jesus' arrest and trial exposed Peter's cowardice, his self-protection and his weak commitment to the kingdom. But Peter learned. He humbled himself, he repented, and was restored to go on to serve as an apostolic witness. We have things in us that have no place in the kingdom of God, and so the Lord must prune us. David must first confront his negative and despairing thoughts and refocus his mind on the Lord. He must trust the Lord to deliver him out of these dire straits. The text here echoes back to chapter 23, when David last encountered his best friend, Jonathan, while on the run from Saul out in the wilderness. Jonathan comes to David to strengthen his hand in God and to remind him of God's precious promises. These words perhaps were ringing in David's mind when Jonathan said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. 
You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. David no longer had Jonathan. In fact, he would never see Jonathan again in this life. But nevertheless, he was not alone because God was with him. And David strengthened himself by recalling God's promises to him to remember that none of the Lord's words had fallen to the ground. God had not failed him and certainly would not now. David further strengthens himself by laying access to God's presence. He calls Abiathar the priest to bring the ephod, which contained in it the Urim and the Thummim, by which one might inquire of the Lord. Now, David apparently had not inquired of the Lord since chapter 23. We don't see the name Yahweh come from David's mouth since back in chapter 26. But after such a long silence, David inquires of the Lord, should I pursue this band? And will I overtake them? It took courage for David to inquire of the Lord. Perhaps the Lord would say no. Perhaps David would simply bear the consequences of his foolishness and his sin. But David will not ask forgiveness rather than permission. He submits to the Lord and waits for the Lord's answer. And the Lord is merciful. He honors David's repentance. He grants him assurances and exhorts him to pursue, to overtake his enemies, to rescue their families, and their property. And David will later suffer grave consequences to his sin. But even in those situations, the Lord was still good, using evil to bring about greater good. You and I do not have an ephod or a priest by which we might consult and receive counsel, sure counsel from the Lord we have his word and his spirit. Hopefully you have a Christian friend like Jonathan or can find such counsel in a Christian community like ours. But even when you find yourself alone between a rock and a hard place, you and I might strengthen ourselves in the Lord, preaching the gospel to ourselves, putting off our despairing thoughts, taking our thoughts captive to Christ, to remind ourselves of God's perfect and precious promises. We will suffer many hardships in this life as sinners in a sinful world, but the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He delights when the repentant sinner returns to him renounces self, seeks the Lord's strength to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. For it is only by his strength that you and I will arrive safely at the gate of the heavenly city. Thirdly, God's providence is essential. David and his 600 men obey and take up pursuit of this marauding band. Along the way, 200 of the men fall too exhausted and stay behind with the baggage. As with Joshua and Gideon, God will have his victory, whether with many or with few. 
in God's providence. They find an Egyptian who had been left for dead by his Amalekite master. With wise compassion, David gives him bread, water, figs, and raisins to revive him. Their kindness is rewarded as the Egyptian reveals that it was Amalekites that had burned Ziklag three days ago. He agrees to be David's guide if David will spare his life and not hand him over to the Amalekites. Little did that Amalekite master realize that his human that he discarded would bring about his own undoing. The men did not find their guide by chance. And it was no, we must not underestimate the challenge of finding a band out in the wilderness. They could have gone in any direction and had several days lead time. With providential advantage, David and his men find their enemies reveling and without suspicion. And so it will be for God's enemies on the great and dreadful day of the Lord. David and his men strike with ferocity for the better part of two days. And it's clear that the Amalekites were superior in numbers as many were struck and 400 of them, equal to David's company, flee on camels. David and his men fight with the Lord's strength with the zeal of men reclaiming that which had been stolen from them. Verses 18 to 20 make it abundantly clear that David recovered everything that had been taken remarkable. Not one life lost. Not one missing. They claimed the spoils of the enemies had even taken from others. You can imagine David's men were grateful that they had not stoned him, that they had trusted his leadership, that they had looked to the Lord to deliver them and not given way to their bitterness. The Lord would use this incident to forge a deep bond between David and his men, loyalty and confidence to endure the many trials that would lay ahead. In his victory, David foreshadows the conquest of his greater son. Jesus came on a mission to earth to recover everything that was lost. He declared in John 6, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus recovers the lost ground taken by the enemy. He will rescue every captive taken prisoner by sin. This past week, my wife and I watched the new movie, Courier, based on a true story of the British salesman, Greville Wynne, who was recruited, by, recruited to be a spy, to spy on the Soviet Union in the early 1960s when Khrushchev promised to bury the West with this nuclear arsenal. They have contact with a high-ranking Soviet official, a patriot named Pinkowski, who was sending evidence to the British and to the Americans in order to avoid the Cuban Missile Crisis and to avert and avoid a nuclear showdown between East and West. A deep bond develops between Wynne and Pinkowski. They sacrifice for one another. Even at the risk of his own life, Wynne re-enters Moscow 
to warn Pinkowski that the noose was tightening, that it was time for he and his family to expatriate to America. But the men are caught, imprisoned, and their loyalty endures, and they sacrifice for another. Even Pinkowski takes the full blame and bears the punishment so that Wynne would eventually be released. Pinkowski sacrifices himself to save many and save even one man. Likewise, Jesus came to save the whole world, to save you and me, each one redeemed by his precious sacrifice. Finally, we see in our passage that God's grace is decisive. David demonstrates his empathy and his wisdom, his wise administration, and the way he leads his men. When they return, they'll find the 200 men who've been left behind with the baggage. Many of the wicked and worthless men in this company want to deny the 200 from receiving any of the spoil. But David denies their proposal, emphasizing that it was the Lord who had granted them victory, recovering all that which was lost. It's God who preserved them, who had given this band into their hands. And so David established the policy of an equal share of the spoils for those who go into battle, those who stay behind for defense. David is operating with a theology of grace, not works. He will not have a meritocracy in his kingdom, but he will proceed with humble and grateful grateful attitude to credit God with their successes and not claim them for himself. David's wisdom is further on display by his forward thinking. When he sends portions of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, and of course he's paving the way for his anointing as king, his installation, using his bounty to bless others. And in in a way, David is like the shrewd manager in Jesus' parable. He uses worldly wealth to gain friends, to further the kingdom of God, to pave the entrance, the road into glory. David's gracious actions to the 200 men left behind, to the elders of Israel, points to the graciousness of our Lord and King. Jesus was subject to great weakness, to the point in which his strength was spent. Two occasions stand out in Jesus' life of utter weakness. The first is 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, where he was brought to his weakest. And lastly, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would accept his Father's will to drink to the dregs the cup of his Father's wrath. He would go on to be arrested, submit himself to an unjust trial, endure the flogging of wicked men, and the shameful death of a Roman cross, the most horrific image of weakness in human history. Jesus became weak so that you and I could be made strong. And so the Lord would say to Paul in his time of weakness, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul would go on to tell Timothy in his last letter, 
Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So when you and I face trials and temptations of many kinds, let us anchor with Nahum 1 verse 7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So I ask ourselves, how have we been strengthening ourselves in a tumultuous year, one of pandemic pressures and social unrest, political turbulence, and many uncertainties? The Mack truck of this past year has exposed the cracks in the bridge of many. Many churches have suffered setbacks. We face afflictions in our own presbytery with ministers having to be put down and deposed from office, others resigning. I'm aware of other trouble spots outside our region. Westminster has been remarkably resilient for which we must praise God. But the pressures and challenges for our people are very real. Have have recent differences, difficulties taught us to dig deeper to restore our foundations, to increase our dependence upon the Lord and rest in his steadfast love that endures forever. The righteous surely may suffer Job-like afflictions, sometimes due to our own sin and folly, other times due to no fault of our own. Jesus said, in the world you and I would have tribulation, but he has overcome the world. Growing up, my father and I had a running joke whenever we would assemble some new purchase or do a repair, we would claim, when all else fails, read the instructions. Sadly, many of us follow the same approach to life. When all else fails, pray. Well, why wait? Why wait for hardship and difficulty? Why be naive and overconfident and go by our own wits? May we learn from David. May he serve as an example of instruction for us. God truly will bring us into seasons where we are overwhelmed. We must learn to depend upon him and him alone. Turn to him. Cast your cares upon him. Find your refuge in him. And strengthen yourself in the Lord, your God. Let us pray. God, we thank you that your strength is sufficient for us. That your providence and your grace carry us through this world and sustain us on this long pilgrimage. Thank you for your word and its power and pray that you would impress it deep upon our hearts that we might truly endure. That we might prosper and flourish by faith, even in the midst of affliction. Go with us as we depart from this place to be your witnesses this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, Contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.